0: Jodcast, praise be to the the Red Sun With Claire Bretherton, Ian Morrison, Luke Hart, Crispin Agar, Emma Alexander, Josh Hayes and Tom Scrag The Jodcast, November 2017 edition Hello and welcome to the Jodcast I'm Luke and joining me in the studio today are Emma and our new presenter Crispin
1: Thanks Luke
2: In the show this time, Tom Scragg interviews Dr. Primana Primadi, Dr. Hesti Wulandari, Dr. Tafik Hidiyat and Dr. Mahashina Putra about the highlights of Indonesian astronomy. And Ian Morrison and Claire Brotherton take a look at what's happening in the November night sky. But first, before all that, here's Josh with this month's news.
3: Hello, in the news this week, Cassini, gone but not forgotten, the possible discovery of an exomoon. But first major results from LIGO. Not content with being the subject of this year's Nobel Prize for Physics, gravitational waves are once again sending ripples through the scientific community. On the 16th of October, the gravitational wave observatories LIGO and Virgo announced that not only have they detected gravitational waves from two merging neutron stars, but electromagnetic counterparts to the merger were also detected right across the spectrum. General relativity predicts that gravitational waves are something produced by objects accelerating, and the more massive the object, the bigger the wave. Since neutron stars are so massive, the gravitational waves produced by two of them merging are large enough for us to detect. Gravitational waves were first observed in September 2015, but the detection of EM waves from the same source is a first and has caused a huge amount of excitement. The first detection was made by the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope, which detected a short gamma-ray flash made two seconds after the merger. The nature of this burst is incredibly similar to what we actually call short gamma-ray bursts, which have long been thought to be made by neutron star mergers, but until today we've had no proof of that. Follow-up observations are now going to be possible due to the localization of the burst, made possible by collaboration between LIGO and Virgo, who together are able to localise any gravitational wave detection to about 30 square degrees, as opposed to 600 square degrees that LIGO could just do on its own. This is going to open the door to new tests of GR and the origin and nature of astrophysical phenomenon we have long wondered about. Despite crashing into Saturn on the 17th of September, Cassini is still making waves, though this time of a non-gravitational variety. Scientists examining data from the final few months of the mission have released some of their findings, many of which the community have found surprising. Cassini spent the last four months of its 20-year mission repeatedly diving between Saturn and its rings before being steered on a collision course with the planet. By plunging into the atmosphere, Cassini was able to collect information on the composition of the planet's atmosphere as well as its gravitational and magnetic fields. The magnetic fields have been particularly surprising. It's thought that in order to generate a magnetic field through rotation of its core, a theory known as dynamo theory, A planet must have a misalignment of around 10 degrees between its rotation and magnetic field axes. Saturn has been found to have a misalignment of less than 0.06 degrees. Current theory suggests that for such good alignment, the magnetic field should have died away within 100 million years. As Saturn is thought to be about 4.5 billion years old, this clearly hasn't happened, and scientists need to re-evaluate their understanding of dynamo theory. Through this measurement as well, we've also been able to obtain direct measurements of the rotation of Saturn, which has given us the best estimate of the length of a day, which has been found to be about 1.8 hours. Cassini entered the atmosphere at a higher altitude than expected, as it was discovered that the atmosphere extended almost all the way out to the rings. Within the atmosphere, scientists were expecting to find evidence of ring material falling to the surface. This would have been reflected in high measurements of water, as the rings have a high quantity of ice within them. However, instead, Cassini measured high concentrations of methane, a gas which was not at all expected to exist in the rings or the upper atmosphere. This has puzzled everyone, and the jury is still out on what leads to such abundances of a gas that is supposed to not be able to last long in such environments due to its volatility. And finally, in the first detection of its kind, the Kepler Space Telescope has possibly found a signal from an exomoon, and now the first explorations of the nature of this moon have been released. In July, David Kipping and Alex Ticci made the announcement that within Kepler data, they had discovered the signs of an exomoon orbiting the planet Kepler-1625b. The planet is a gas giant somewhere in size between Saturn and a brown dwarf. At this point, it is important to note that the exomoon has not been confirmed as the Kepler data on the planet and the exomoon is not of high enough quality. Though the Hubble Space Telescope conducted observations on the 29th of October to attempt to confirm its existence and we should soon see these results published. Due to the lack of data, it is difficult to characterise the exomoon. This hasn't stopped people from trying. In a paper accepted by the Astronomical Journal on the 14th of October, a link to which you can find on our website, René Heller has published his analysis of what data there is. The bottom line is that whilst the exact mass and size of the moon is unknown, the bounds on these parameters mean that the moon could be anything between an Earth-mass gas planet to a Saturn-sized rocky world. Heller's analysis points towards something somewhere in the middle, likely a Neptune-mass exomoon, orbiting a large, super-Jovian planet. This is an incredible find, as all current planetary formation theories cannot explain how such a large moon would form. There are currently three understood methods for a planet to acquire a moon. The first is through impact, such as our own moon. Our planet was hit by a very large object which threw out material which collapsed to form our moon. The second method is for moons to form with the planet out of the protoplanetary disk, such as around Jupiter and its Galilean moons. And the final method is for a planet to capture a preformed body with its gravitational field. This is the case for planets like Neptune, one of which its moons has a retrograde orbit, which cannot be explained by either of the other two methods. None of these theories even come close to explaining how such a large moon has come to be around. To paraphrase Heller, if this can be validated as a huge moon orbiting a super Jovian planet, then it will pose an exquisite riddle for formation theorists to solve.
0: Thanks for that, Josh. Now Tom Scragg interviews Dr. Pramana Pramadi, Dr. Hesti Wulandari, Dr. Tafik Kiriat, and Dr. Mahasina Putra about the highlights of Indonesian astronomy. Hello.
4: My name is Tom Skrank, and I'm here today with four representatives from Technology Bandon University in Indonesia. Welcome, and thanks for agreeing to uh, sit and chat to us for a little while. I'm going to ask you each just to say a few words about yourself, your name, what your interests are. So, we go from right to left for those of you listening in audio.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Hello, my name is Seno, for short my complete name is Mahasena Putra. My research interest right now is uh, using small telescopes to do some science like uh, uh, observing variable stars, observing the moon uh, at the daytime, things like that. And we, I with some of my groups are trying to uh, automate uh, telescopes to make uh, robotic, that is good.
4: Okay, that's, that's great, thank you.
5: Hello,
6: my name is Taufik Hidayat, I love radio astronomy very much since, uh, since my youth, <laughs> and uh, with radio astronomy I make some observation for planetary bodies, mainly in the solar system of course, in the, in the outer part of the solar system such as uh, Jupiter, Neptune, and also Titans. And recently, i also um working on radio astronomy data for extra galaxies. That's the subject in astronomy that I love so much. Okay, thank you.
7: Hello, my name is Pramana Pramadi. I work for the Department of Astronomy and also at the BOSCA Observatory of the Institute of Technology, Bandung. My primary interest is in cosmology, in particular on the use of gravitational lensing to study the evolution of the large scale structure. Most of the time, it uses uh, computer simulation, but we do use uh, observational data to constrain our computer simulation input. And uh, on a different side of studying cosmology, I do Think of the philosophical aspect and other uh, aspects that usually people like to know when uh, they speak about the universe. For example, where they are in the universe and how they relate to the universe. And it's interesting that some of those questions can be answered using science.
4: Okay. Yes, absolutely.
7: And finally... Mm-hmm. Hello, my name is Hesti Ulandari. I come from Indonesia and I work at the uh, Astronomy Department of in- Institute Technology Bandung. I'm interested in galaxy and cosmology. I did astroparticle physics uh, during my PhD, but now I'm concentrated on the galaxy and cosmology, things like uh, looking for dark matter and uh, dark energy using. Uh, astrophysical objects such as uh, galaxy clusters
4: I'm very interested by all your talks and um, we're covering a range obviously from um, optical and planetary science through radio astronomy out to cosmology Um, we're not going to get to cover all of that in in this short discussion Um, so what I thought maybe we'd talk about instead is a couple of the reasons why you're here in Manchester so, um, part of the discussion was around uh, reciting or building a new observatory in West Timor. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the, the, the history behind that?
5: Okay, yes, uh, uh, we have an observatory right now. It's called Waska Observatory. And, and this observatory is the root of present astronomy in Indonesia. Basically, yes, practically uh, it is rooted on the observatory. And now the observatory is almost 100 years old. And the surrounding area is uh, terribly bright now because of the development of housing and uh, hotels around that beautiful area. And uh, 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 since that problem, we think that it's the right time to to have a new observatory in the better place in the country. And then we search through all kinds of uh, available means, for example the uh, satellite data, and we, we found that the best place uh, from the uh, clear sky fraction is in the eastern part of Indonesia. And then <coughs> uh, There are some other criteria to choose when you want to build an observatory. First, of course, is the darkness of the sky, and then the clear sky. uh, I mean, due to the clouds, you have to to have very clear sky uh, in terms of clouds. And then, if possible, you have to find a high enough place so that the uh, atmosphere above you is uh, uh, thinner and then of course access you you need to go there uh, somehow so based on this criteria we, we, we come to the West Timor in, Okay in, in that okay.
4: So West Timor is um, comparatively underdeveloped? Oh yes
5: uh, the especially near the location near the site that you choose it's really far behind underdeveloped but 100 kilometers from there there's a, the capital of the province it's developed okay you have airport you have uh, many things like it. it's modern yes you need
4: transport to be mm-hmm. able to get there and mm-hmm. lots of visiting astronomers right. and mm-hmm. and technicians and all the other work that goes on so is it purely an optical observatory you're looking for or are you looking to develop um, radio astronomy, as well in that area.
6: Yes. Uh, so, uh, before answering this question, uh, another motivation, is, which is very important, beh- behind the proposal for new observatory, is to strengthen to encourage the development of science in Indonesia. And uh, yeah, well, we 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 know that uh, our economic situation now is more or less good and we believe that it will increase in the future so i think we have to 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 make a well a good proposal for for for, uh, for our government to develop uh, new science in indonesia so the proposal is uh, fortunately accepted by our government yeah and and uh, we think that uh, not only optical telescope which is of course very important and also it's very well known for publics, for great publics. Uh, but radio astronomy we think that it is also very important to introduce uh, science in Indonesia, mm-hmm. first yeah, because it is a uh, very major uh, instruments, very major science and also in terms of uh, budgets well, it could be more or less affordable depending on the, 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 the type of the instruments. So that's why we, 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 we need, uh, we, we encourage to, to propose to have as soon as possible a new radio telescope in Indonesia. Yeah.
4: Um, just maybe as an aside, but um, a lot of countries, uh, for example in Africa, yeah. are looking at old telecommunications dishes, radio dishes. Um, that are no longer used because of, you know, improved um, fiber-based optical fiber communications. Mm-hmm. Are there facilities like that available in, Dini- in Indonesia that you could potentially use? Or are you focused on, let's build a nice, nice new telescope that's, um, you know, purpose designed for radio astronomy?
6: Yeah, um, our focus, uh, we should have uh, good instruments which is connected to uh, local and international cooperation, it means a VLBI system will be a very good option. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, well, we, we have talked with our neighbors, for example, in Australia, in Japan, in China. I think uh, this is the first option for for developing radio astronomy. Yeah, uh, for preparing this, actually, uh, almost uh, the last 10 years, we, we also try to construct a uh, small radio telescope yes. with students, uh, with small instrument, low-cost instrument and so on. So, yeah, it is very encouraging to get new ones and well, should be connected to a larger community in our region. So that's, that's the idea.
4: You mentioned um, developing science and engineering capabilities mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. within Indonesia. Is that specifically Related to the observatory, or is it a wider proposition across the country? So lots of institutions joining together to do work.
7: Um, not uh, that far at the moment, because uh, considering the um, the local condition, I mean the very immediate neighbourhood to the uh, to the future site of the new telescope facility. So we are actually aiming. Uh, basic uh, STEM education, strengthening school, helping teachers, and uh, building more rational thinking capability of the uh, local government officials, for example. That actually might be the what we think the the first step before we getting into the higher level of engineering other technological capabilities. The university which is located in Kupang, the the seat of the uh, province, actually is trying to be involved with this uh, project, mm-hmm. and they do have uh, people with high, uh, high uh, competence. So we work together with them, but it is not uh, ready. Uh, project quite yet, so therefore okay. we are here to <laughs> okay. to learn about uh, various uh, possible projects that would uh, not only speed up the the process of learning in the in the local area, but also um, thinking about future uh, prospects. What could be done in areas very close to the to the uh, to the observatory, which uh, uh, needless to say, need to be protected for for a long, long time. As far as dark sky and a uh, radio quiet, so yep. because um. there there is population there, it, it is not uh, an empty place like you know in in high mountain in, in Chile. There are population. It is it's going to grow, so we need to see ahead of the time for that
4: Okay, it's it's always a challenge because you want local populations to support what you do you want them to be quiet about it
8: <laughs>
4: um, particularly on radio not make too much radio noise but obviously light pollution in the, the UK means all of our big optical telescopes are overseas now um, so yes but that, that's interesting because you touched on dark skies and I know some of the um, discussions that have been going on are about formal um, agreements for dark skies <coughs> Is it a, a UN um, or UNESCO type um, agreement that you, you, you're thinking about, or
7: not yet? But that is one of the uh, uh, the best option that we're trying to pursue to have that location as a dark sky reserve. Well, there are lots of uh, uh, requirements that we need to fulfil and we, we need to look into very very carefully. But once. The location is uh, certified as a dark sky reserve. Then we will have the support of uh, international community, basically, to, to have it as. And I think that would be a good pressure for the local government to enforce the uh, the protection regulation.
4: It's yeah. It's always a challenge, uh, particularly when you've got developing areas.
7: Mm-hmm.
4: Timescales. What. Developing a new observatory doesn't happen overnight, so how long have you been working on this? Is it this group? Is it a much bigger group? Um, Is there a lot of support from the Indonesian government for this activity?
5: We have been thinking about uh, building a new observatory since 10 years ago and we started to find a better place uh, other than The present observatory started about ten years ago, and uh, it it was started by uh, people in our department in the Department of Astronomy. Okay. Near two thousand fourteen or so, we don't know uh, how or where where the money will come from, but we know the good place is there. And then in Indonesia, there is uh, uh, like NASA, it's National Institute for Space and Aeronautics. So, this body is as much uh, bigger legal position or something. So, they, this is uh, if a, mon- a big money will go. To build something, it must go through uh, this kind of agency, a bigger agency. Us in the, it's one department in the university is only small unit, so we bring our proposal to the this uh, this institute, okay. and there are scientists with uh, astronomical background, and they think the proposal is good, so they they push the proposal um, to the Government and then finally, the government agreed to, to, to invest some money for the. Excellent. Okay. okay. And the time scale, well, actually, in, in our thought uh, previously, we think to build an observatory like what we <laughs> imagine is will take about 10 years. But uh, uh, this institute thing, uh, well, they asked us, is it possible to, to make it shorter, <laughs> say, four years or so? Uh-huh. Wow! Wow! <laughs> it's impossible <laughs> to say no. <laughs> wow! <Well, impossible>.
4: Yeah, <laughs> when well, you got the opportunity, yes. absolutely. Yes. And then,
5: uh, well, at, when they ask uh, that question to shorten the <coughs> the construction uh, period, we already got support from the local people. Uh, for example, for the land, they they already. In principle, give us the land, solve probably fifty percent of the problem. We got the land from the local government, and then yes, uh, that institute, this institute, uh, follow up what we have done, and then the next problem was to to choose the telescope maker who who uh, will. who who have the capacity to build uh, a telescope in a a short time.
4: Yes, short Uh, time shots, ordering time scales. Yes, yes. I don't uh, tend hmm. to think of that particularly as a challenge, you know. Oh, make a big mirror. Oh, that's fine. (laughs) 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 But that's not really the case. It's it's a very specialized um, science and art, almost. is there many people you talk to around the world that, that can do this, or is it just a very select few manufacturers?
5: Well, um, there are few manufacturers that uh, we know uh, has the capability to, to, to build a uh, three meter class telescope in a short time. Uh, well, actually this company has uh, come to visit the National Institute of uh, Space and Aeronautics, we call it LAPAN, and they make a presentation there, and then we know that our friends in Kyoto is uh, building 3-meter class telescopes okay. uh, of, of their own, and they have been thinking about this telescope probably 15 years ago, and then uh, this year is nearing the completion. And since we only have four years, uh, we think it's impossible to think everything from scratch. All right. And then our approach was to, to 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 copy the working telescope if they allow yes. us. And then uh, we uh, asked the colleagues in Kyoto whether they will allow us to copy their telescope. And well, we got a very positive answer. That's good. Yeah. That's excellent. Then uh, they introduced us, uh, introduced Bapan to the maker, telescope maker, and the discussion going on. And uh, hopefully, it's not. Decided 100 percent, probably 95 percent <laughs> right now. Yeah, if uh, that five percent count, then next year uh, the construction will be started.
4: Okay, that's good news. I mm-hmm. mean, um, most scientific instruments are. Um, Know, fairly unique they're mm-hmm. fairly there are lots of common principles but mm-hmm. the, they tend to be specific designs mm-hmm. um but if it's no reason why if you've got a, rel- a very modern instrument just being designed you can't do a copy of it because there's mm-hmm. lots more science to do yes. um so that's that's good that's, um, I look forward to uh, potentially coming out and seeing the, the observatory um, when he's, <laughs> if I'm still around <laughs> and when it's opened. So, I'd like to thank you very much for for giving your, your time today and for uh, interesting presentations and the discussion here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much <laughs> you. for your patience. Yes. <laughs> it's
1: okay. Thanks for that, Tom. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends.
0: Emma, what have you got for your odds and ends this week?
2: So this month, I uh, have an article, uh, at least, uh, well, I've seen quite a few articles, which have been titled something along the lines of The universe shouldn't exist, scientists conclude, which is a bit of a bold statement on behalf of scientists. I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, So this is basically originating from. The idea that in the Big Bang there should have been equal amounts of matter and antimatter created. But that must have not been the case, um, potentially, because all we see in the universe currently is matter. And we're here. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So so matter and antimatter, when they meet each other, annihilate in a burst of energy and the matter gets dissipated into energy. So... If there had been equal amounts of matter and antimatter created initially in the Big Bang, then there shouldn't be any matter at all, it should have all annihilated with antimatter. The fact that we see matter in the universe is actually one of the the, the big questions of, of physics. Um, so scientists have been looking for differences between matter and antimatter that might explain why um, this, this imbalance has occurred and we get matter in our universe and uh, not, not antimatter. Uh, Usually, That's quite cool. Yeah. Um, So basically what what these uh, physicists at CERN have done, um, and they've they've just published a uh, paper in Nature, is that they have measured the magnetic moment of the antiproton uh, to one part in one billion. So the magnetic moment is one property of a particle that, that you can measure, and it's a fundamental property of that particle. And what they found was that to one part in one billion... Um, that this is the the same as the proton's magnetic moment uh, with a mm. minus sign um because it's mm. because it's antimatter um so yeah this is this is quite confusing because this was one of the potential things that uh, could have distinguished matter and antimatter um, but so far uh, matter and antimatter other than having um the opposite charge uh, which is how we, one of the ways you can distinguish antimatter mm-hmm. um yeah, they're the same. Cool. The universe shouldn't exist, apparently. Oh, Crispin
0: looks like he wants to weigh in here.
2: <laughs> Go on, Crispin. What do you so, want to say?
1: So presumably what they were hoping to find is that the, the magnetic moment of antimatter is different to that... Of, or, say, antiprotons is different yeah. to that of what we might call normal.
2: Exactly, protons. yes, hmm. yeah. Um, so, the, yeah, the, the, there are a few different ways um, in which people think that they might differ, and this was this was one of the things... Apparently this was one of the the least well... Uh, constrained properties of antimatter mm. previously um, other ones had previously been measured to one part in a billion whereas this had only before this study had only been measured to one part in 1 million which mm. seems still seems very precise from from my point of view as an astronomer I, I know in astronomy there are very p- precise things we've got just yeah. thin yeah. here working on pulsars well, but- i don't
1: know order of magnitude yeah, yeah. yeah. sorted <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, that's very interesting but but this new results precision is Equivalent to measuring the circumference of the Earth to within a few centimetres. It's, it's that level wow. of. Uh, That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. That's
0: pretty impressive. Crispin, can you top that?
1: So I basically just Googled astronomy news <laughs> to find my bit. <laughs> <laughs> so what I found was that, uh, according to a recent paper by Tajadeen Nicholson El Mutami Detal in the American Astronomical Society, published in October 2017. So what this analysis shows is that the A-ring, which is one of the outer ring groups of Saturn, uh, was previously thought to be only confined by this satellite, Janus, alone. However, new this, this new analysis suggests that it's in fact confined by several satellites, Pan, Atlas, Prometheus, Pandora, Janus, Epimetheus and Mimas, which are all fairly small satellites compared to the Moon, for example. That's cool. So the issue with planetary rings and, in fact, disks astrophysical disks at all is that they are subject to radial spreading so these these disks are orbiting their body in this case Saturn and what happens is the inner ring particles exchange angular momentum with the outer ring particles mm. so what happens is the, the, inner, the inner particles lose angular momentum causing them to drift inward as they lose energy but this angular momentum is transferred to the outer particles which gain momentum mm. and therefore spread out mm-hmm. that's and pretty cool So rather than being held in place by one satellite, Janus, it's actually thought it's held in place by several satellites now. So Pan, Atlas, Prometheus, Pandora, Janus, Epimetheus and Mimas, which are all fairly small compared to our moon.
0: Nice. Very interesting. That's pretty cool.
2: Uh, so I really like Saturn. It's one of my favourite planets, probably because it was the first one that I saw through a telescope. Um, have either of you guys had a look at it through yeah. Through telescopes?
1: Uh, not a good telescope. Oh. So ah. I've seen a very sort of blurred blob. Yeah.
2: I mean, so it's always my first view, right? All I kind of saw was a blob that had some smaller blobs on the side. But for me, that was so magical. Because like, there's the rings! Yeah. Saturn has rings! And I have seen it in vector telescope since and uh, you can you depending on how good the telescope is you can sometimes see um some some of the separation between the rings so for example there's the uh, cassini division um which is actually just inside of the a ring and you can if you get a good enough telescope you can see that Mm, um, nice. So you can see the distinction in the rings. Um, I just think Saturn's really pretty. Saw, I'm, not, I'm not sure you're yeah. supposed to have favourites, but I think no, Saturn no, 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 might be my like, favourite.
1: Definitely one of the sort of <laughs> it's one iconic, of the coolest ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely I, iconic structure.
0: When I saw Saturn, I got it with the little rings on its tilt, and um, I actually managed to we, we managed to pick out Titan as well, that's which cool. was pretty cool. Yeah. Oh yeah, that, um, that
2: is an interesting thing about Saturn so yeah. is because with with the seasons. Um, as, uh, as we see it from different angles, we, you can either see the, ed- the, the rings more edge on or you can see them more at a tilt. So the, the rings from Earth either appear to be bigger or smaller depending on what angle we're viewing them, them at. I'm not sure what they're at at the moment. Actually, what Saturn's looking like due
1: to procession of Saturn.
2: Well, it's it's the same um, effect um, that kind of gives us seasons. So we're we're on the Earth on a tilt of 23 ish um, degrees, um, as is Saturn. Um, So depending exactly how Saturn is inclined um, with relation to the Earth, it's either could be kind of tipped towards us, and so we see the top of the rings. Mm. It could be tipped away from us, so we see the bottom of the rings, or we see the rings more. Edge on. Saturn's, Saturn's
0: orbital period's really long as well, mm. so over a procession of a couple of seasons to us, it hasn't moved very much. Mm. So we can see when we we start moving around around the axes and tilting a little bit from our perspective in the in the United Kingdom,
1: yeah.
0: we'll see a little bit of a rotation. Oh, I see. You see, it's cool, isn't it? I like that. Uh, Observation cool. astronomy.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Um, thank you, Crispin. And uh, for my final order end today, I'm going to um, talk about the recent uh, news report, which has come out of many sources, such as, for example, The Telegraph and CNN and other ones, about the, uh, the news that Stephen Hawking's thesis was released yesterday, and in the wake of such, it actually crashed the Cambridge University website, because everybody wanted to look at it at the same time, which I thought was quite cool. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Does anyone know what it was actually about? Because I tried to look at it whilst the website was...
0: right. So, it, so it's so it's quieting down a little bit now. So we're talking um it must have been about it's about eighteen hours post post uh breaking of website. And about now it's 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 simmered down a little bit. And if you look, it's actually about his his thesis title was The Properties of the Expanding Universe. And so it was very cosmology based, as, such as Stephen Hawking. And um, what I thought was really cool about it, it's it's obviously very long, you can't really go through a thesis, it's a very long document, but one of the things that I thought was really cool was there was a section on gravitational waves or gravitational radiation in an expanding universe, which is kind of cool given the relevance that we have today with LIGO and such. So yeah, I thought it was kind of cool. Um it is generally a, a thesis on sort of uh, cosmology and addressing like per you know um what happens in little little bits um, as the space expands, what happens to those little fluctuations as it were in your um in your space but yeah it's it's kind of cool um,
1: so I guess in in sort of popular science and um, mm. well my mind Stephen Hawking's best known for his work on black holes mm. and Hawking radiation so does that is that do you know if that's mentioned in his thesis at all or is that sort of later work?
0: Yes, yeah, so there was a couple of things. I have to be honest. Uh, sorry, listeners. I have to be honest. There were quite a lot of things in the in the thesis when I skimmed over it that I didn't understand, and I haven't had the time to dive go into. I know shock horror, uh, but yeah, I uh, it was just that gravitational waves bit that sort of popped. The gravitational radiation explicitly is what it says, and it popped out at me, and I was like, oh, my, this is really cool because obviously this is what's what's being um, being discussed at the minute. But yeah, gen- generally speaking, I think it's it's it's. As such as, as is a thesis the majority of the previous material is sort of uh, putting in all the work in terms of how cosmology is formalised and things like that and then it builds which I thought was kind of nice So,
2: mm. yeah, I, uh, I did have a quick look at it I've not read it in, in mm. any depth I just wanted to, to see the document and Looking at it, it's it's a typewritten document with handwritten equations yeah. in it, which I think nowadays we take for granted. You know all this kind of typesetting software that we have, mm-hmm. and we can easily put equations and, and and set them out nicely. But this was all done by hand, mm-hmm. uh, which that's the, that's dedication. In,
1: in the days pre LaTeX, yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Well, it was nineteen sixty six. This was written, yeah. so yeah, quite a while ago.
2: Um, what I also liked as well is that well. Especially the introductory section, there were some equations in there that I I recognise from yeah. my, my undergraduate cosmology course. Now I'm not a cosmologist, no, no. Um, so uh, it's it's not something that I'm working with day to day. But um, the, these equations were you know, they, they've not changed because they're the fundamental. And you're like,
0: ah, oh, Stephen Hawking wrote these equations. Yeah, I know these equations. <laughs> it's really cool. Isn't I it?
2: must be as smart as Stephen Hawking.
0: <laughs> I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was cool to see.
1: I, I'm I'm cur- I'd be curious to know and perhaps one of the listeners can find this out for us mm-hmm. has anything in his thesis changed over the years so is, is there mm. something that he's either oh, it's homework we're saying yeah, for the listeners here is that right
2: yeah. yeah all you need is a uh, good grasp yeah. of uh, <laughs> theoretical uh, cosmology, cosmology and uh, you're good to go you may no. not know anything about theoretical no. cosmology but, but if
1: you, you see you something. something
0: yeah <laughs> you might see something and you might think hang on a second yeah. that's not actually what what i think there is a lot there'll be a lot of buzzwords in that thesis you might see so if anyone fancies carring through several hundred pages um but you know don't feel obliged (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but yeah okay so hopefully we're now going to move to a to a man who hasn't broken any websites with his thesis his thesis and that's ian morrison with this month's night sky
8: night sky for november 2017 well after sunset that lovely region of the sky containing the Summer Triangle, Altair in Aquila, Deneb in Cygnus, and Vega in Lara is setting down into the west. A rather more open and less obvious region of sky, is now, I suppose, towards the southwest. It contains the constellation of Pegasus, the winged horse, which actually is upside down. And from rats which is the top left-hand star of the square of Pegasus, is a way of finding the great nebula in Andromeda, M31. And on the Night Sky website, just put in Jodrell Bank Night Sky into uh, a search engine, you'll find... A little chart showing you that's one way of finding it, starting at Alpharats, with another way starting from the constellation of Cassiopeia, which is almost overhead in the evening during November. And the right-hand V of the W points down to where Andromeda lies. So that's a nice region to look at. But of course, rising first in the southeast and then in the east is first of all coming down towards the east from Cassiopeia, we have the constellation of Perseus. And between the two is a very nice object. It's called the double cluster. And with binoculars or a small telescope, it looks very nice indeed. It's two little open clusters close together. And in fact, one of them has got uh, five rather nice red giant stars around it. Down below Perseus, we'll see the Hyades cluster in Taurus the bull. And above it, to the right of it, of course, is the lovely Pleiades Cluster, one of the most beautiful open clusters we can see in the northern sky. And then rising in the southeast and gradually getting higher in the sky is the constellation of Orion the Hunter. The three stars that make its belt point up to the right towards the Hyades and the Pleiades and down to the left, but yet to rise, the star Sirius in Canis Major. And below the central star of the belt is a little fuzzy region you can see with binoculars or a telescope, which is the Orion Nebula, a birthplace of stars. And then slightly to the north of east, you might see two bright stars, Castor and Pollux, and they're the heads of the twins in Gemini. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter passed behind the sun on October the 26th, and so will become visible again in the pre-dawn sky after the first week or so of November it will then lie down to the lower left of Venus. However, by the end of November, it will rise some two hours before the Sun, allowing its 31 arc-second disk, shining at a magnitude of minus 1.7, to be observed under clear skies. And I do hope we have more clear skies in November. It's been pretty dire in September and October. Sadly, of course, the low elevation will hinder our view. In comparison to Jupiter, which is now seen before dawn, Saturn is seen just after sunset, dropping down towards the horizon a little more each week. Shining at magnitude about plus 0.5, it sets around two hours after the sun on the first, but little more than one hour by month's end. It starts the month moving slowly eastwards in Ophiuchus, but reaches the boundary of Sagittarius on the 18th, moving to the lowest part of the ecliptic. Last month, Saturn's rings reached their maximum tilt to the line of sight of 27 degrees, and it's a real pity that Saturn is so low in the sky. Sadly, this will not improve for quite a few years as Saturn moves slowly through the lowest part of the ecliptic. Towards the very end of the month, Saturn edges closer to Mercury, but we're both so low above the horizon at sunset they'll be difficult to spot. Well, Mercury passed between us and the Sun, that's called superior conjunction, on October the 8th, and so will become visible again after sunset in the latter part of the month. From around the 17th, it might be glimpsed with binoculars low in the southwest 20 minutes after sunset, shining at magnitude minus 0.4. It reaches greatest elongation some 22 degrees east of the Sun on November the 23rd. But due to the shallow angle of the ecliptic to the horizon, Never lies far above it. In the last few days of the month, its magnitude falls to minus 0.2 and it only lies about five degrees above the horizon 30 minutes after sunset. So that's the end of its apparition during November. Now, Mars, lying in Virgo, is now becoming a morning object at the start of its new apparition and rises three to four hours earlier than the sun. It has a magnitude of about 1.7 and an angular size of 3.9, slightly increasing to 4.2 arc seconds, so one would not expect to see any details on its salmon pink surface. On the fourth, Mars is just three degrees to the upper right of Porrima, Gamma Virginis. This closes to two degrees by the sixth, and by the end of the month, moving slightly lower down in the sky, it will lie just three degrees to the upper left of Spica, Alpha Virginis. Well, Venus is now moving back towards the Sun, and at the start of the month rises some 90 minutes before dawn, but that falls to about 45 minutes by the end of the month. Its magnitude remains at minus 3.9, as its angular diameter shrinks from 10.4 to 10 arc seconds. But at the same time, the illuminated phase increases from 96 to 99%, and that explains why the magnitude doesn't change. At the beginning of the month, it lies close to Spica, Alpha Virginis, with Venus some a 100 times, which is five magnitudes brighter than Spica. By month's end, though, binoculars might well be needed to spot it low above the eastern horizon, but please do not use them after the sun has risen. So what about the highlights of the month? And here I would refer you to the Night Sky page, because I have given Star charts to help you find many of the things I'm about to talk about. So, November Is still a good month to observe Neptune and Uranus with a small telescope. Neptune came into opposition on the 2nd of September, so it's still well placed to spot this month. Its magnitude is plus 7.9, so it should be easily spotted in binoculars lying in the constellation of Aquarius. Uranus reached opposition on October the 19th, so it's visible pretty well all night. It'll be highest in the sky around 1am BST, shining at magnitude 5.7 with a disk 3.7 arc seconds across. It lies in Pisces, 1 degree and 18 arc minutes up to the right of Omicron Pisces. Its turquoise green colour should be seen in a small telescope and it should be fairly easily seen in binoculars. Now another one where I've given the star chart I've mentioned already, around the 18th of November, and that's New Moon, so there's no moon in the sky, Find Andromeda, M31. And also, perhaps a little harder, M33 in Triangulum. Andromeda is the largest galaxy in our local group, our own Milky Way galaxy, the second, and M33 the third. So on the night sky page, I give a chart to provide two ways of finding Andromeda and then how to find M33. We do have some meteor showers in November. In the hours before dawn, we have a chance of observing meteors from two showers. The first that might produce some bright events. Is the northern Torrid shower, which has a broad peak of around ten days, but doesn't give many meteors per hour. The peak is around the 10th of November, but then the moon is close to third quarter, so its light will intrude. The better known November shower are the Leonids, which peak on the 9th of the 17th, 18th of the month. Then, of course, as I've mentioned, the moon is new, so will not hinder our view. So, an excellent year to look out for the Leonids. Let's really hope we have a clear night. As one might expect, the shower's radiant lies within the sickle of Leo, and the meteors could be spotted from the 15th to the 20th of the month. The Leonid meteors enter the atmosphere at around 71 kilometers per second. That's about the fastest that's possible, and this makes them somewhat challenging to photograph. Up to 15 meteors an hour could be observed towards the zenith. Well, there is a comet that you might be able to pick up with binoculars, so throughout November it should be possible to spot comet 2.017.01 2.017.01 brackets A S A S S N close brackets as it nears the Pole Star. And again, I've given a chart to tell you where to look on the night sky page. Its brightness is now falling, but at magnitude eight or nine, it should be visible with good binoculars near the Pole Star towards the end of the month. So a few brief things. On November the 6th, very early morning, the moon occults Aldebaran and the Hyades cluster. It's a near full moon, so the actual cluster won't be very visible. But with a telescope, it should be possible to see it occulting the red giant star. And I've given the times of ingress and egress on the night sky page. Remember, of course, that Aldebaran is not part of the cluster. It lies at a distance of 65 light-years away, whereas the Hyades cluster is 153 light-years away. On November the 15th, about one hour before dawn, Mars will be seen to the right of a thin crescent moon. The following day, November the 16th before dawn, one can see three planets and a crescent moon lined up in the eastern sky, lining along the ecliptic. Again, in the dawn glare, binoculars and a very low eastern horizon may well be needed to spot them. But please, of course, do not use the binoculars after the sun has risen. So that's a fair bit to look for during November. Let's hope for some clearer skies and good hunting.
2: Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Antipodean listeners, here's Claire Brotherton with the night sky where you are.
9: Cura and welcome to the November Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. Mercury now joins Saturn in our western evening skies. Unfortunately, it won't be as easy to spot as its last evening appearance in July and August, as it sets before twilight ends. At the start of the month, orange Antares, the brightest star in Scorpius or Tematawamaui, will sit between the two planets. But as the stars and Saturn slowly sink closer to the horizon from night to night, Mercury climbs higher, sitting level with Antares on the 14th and with Saturn on the 24th, when it also reaches its greatest elongation east. Scorpius Māui has been dominating our evening skies over the winter months, but is now disappearing from view ready to reappear in the morning over the coming months. As Scorpius sets in the west, his arch-enemy and our summer constellation Orion rises towards the east, along with Taurus and Canis Major. Antares, which marks the heart of the scorpion, is also known as Rehua to Maori. It represents one of the four Po, or pillars, that hold Ranganui, the sky father, up in the sky. It sits just above the southwestern horizon at around 11pm at the beginning of the month. These four Po form the basis of a celestial compass, a map of the night sky that was used to navigate the vast Pacific Oceans and bring our Polynesian ancestors to Aotearoa, New Zealand. The other three Po are marked by Matariki, the Pleiades, Totoru, the Belt of Orion, and Takarua, Sirius, which line up along the eastern horizon. Matariki supports one of Rangi's shoulders and marks the rising point of the sun at the winter solstice. Takarua, or Sirius, supports the other shoulder and is the closest bright star to the sun's rising point at the summer solstice. These two stars represent the extent of the sun's movement throughout the year. In between, rising directly east, is Totoru, or the belt of Orion, marking the rising point of the sun at the time of the equinox. Stretching from Scorpius around to Orion is Te Waka or Tamararity, or Tamararity's canoe, which lines up along the southern horizon in our evening sky. The front of the canoe is marked by the tail of Scorpius, with a sting representing the beautifully carved wood that adorns the prow. The star at the end of the scorpion's curving tail marks a place where the bow meets the water, whilst Rehua or Antares marks a crest of a wave as the great Waka glides through the waters of the Milky Way. The southern cross marks the anchor, Tepunga, and the pointers, Alpha and Beta Centauri, are the anchor line, Tertura. Orion marks the stern of the canoe, with the elaborately carved stern post rising all the way up from red Betelgeuse to bluish Rigel. A tall mast rises from the Waka all the way to Achenar, high in the south, the brightest star in the southern constellation of Eridanus, the river, which we explored last month. A little below Achenar, the two small fuzzy patches of light that make up the large and small magellanic clouds mark the waka's sails. One story tells of Tamareriti sailing across the sky in his waka with all the stars in kete or baskets. He places the key seasonal and navigational stars in their correct positions in the sky, but he finds he has lots of smaller stars left over. So he capsizes his waka, spilling all the smaller stars into the sky forming Te Ikaroa, or the Milky Way. Another story tells of Tamaroti scattering bright pebbles in the dark, lightless sky to help guide his way home. The pebbles became the stars, and the wake of his waka formed the Milky Way. The sky we see in mid-evening in October-November each year is, in fact, the same sky we see just before sunrise around June, the time we celebrate Matariki, or Maori New Year. It is said that the bright star Canopus, or Atutahi, the Araki, or high chief of the heavens, pulls up the anchor at the start of the year, starting the waka in motion. During the year you can track the progress of Tamaroti's waka as it moves across the sky one day at a time. On the opposite side of the sky is the great square of Pegasus, the flying horse, leaping over the northern horizon. Last month, we talked a little about this wonderful constellation, its brightest star, Enif, marking the horse's muzzle, and the beautiful globular cluster, M15. But we can also use Pegasus to help us find some of our nearest galactic neighbours. The star at the bottom right of the great square of Pegasus is in fact Alpha Andromeda, or Alpha Rats, the brightest star in the constellation of Andromeda. Located some 97 light-years from Earth, it is a spectroscopic binary star whose two components orbit each other in just a hundred days. Alpha Rats is a great starting point to star hop to the great galaxy in Andromeda, or M31. The nearest large spiral galaxy to our own, M31 makes a rare appearance in our southern hemisphere skies at this time of year, but you'll need a good dark sky and a clear view of the northern horizon to spot it. The further north you go, the better your chances of finding it. From Alpharats, look for two chains of stars extending out to the east. Hop along the uppermost and brightest of these chains, past Delta Andromedae to Myrak, Beta Andromedae, then turn sharply right and head down to New Andromedae, before jumping on the same distance again to find the galaxy. The Andromeda Galaxy covers an area around six times the diameter of the full moon but only the brighter central region is easily visible to the naked eye, or with binoculars or a small telescope. At 2.5 million light-years away and magnitude 3.4, the Andromeda galaxy is the most distant object easily visible with the naked eye. It is thought to contain around 1 trillion stars, well over twice the number estimated in our own Milky Way. Some recent studies, however, have suggested that the Milky Way may contain more dark matter giving the two galaxies a more similar mass. M31 is approaching the Milky Way at 110 kilometers per second and is expected to collide and merge with our own galaxy in around 4 billion years. A little higher and towards the east, the Triangulum Galaxy, or M33, is better placed in our skies. At around 3 million light-years from Earth and shining at magnitude 5.7, it is just at the limit of naked eye visibility under excellent conditions, making it one of the most distant objects able to be glimpsed unaided. To find M33, head back from Andromeda towards Mirac, and then continue a similar distance to the other side. While spotting it with the naked eye is a real challenge, it's easily observable in a pair of binoculars. With the mass of tens of millions of suns, M thirty three is also approaching us at around a hundred thousand kilometers per hour. The most striking feature of the Triangulum Galaxy is a massive region of star formation known as NGC six oh four, which can be seen with a small telescope. NGC six hundred four is a hundred times larger than the Orion Nebula and contains over two hundred hot massive blue stars formed just three million years ago. In fact, if it were at the same distance as the Orion Nebula, it would be second brightest to only the moon in the nighttime sky. Also look out this month for the Leonid meteor shower, which peaks around the 17th to 18th of November, when the Earth passes through the trail of dust and debris left behind by the comet Temple Tuttle. Whilst normally a reliable but fairly quiet meteor shower, Observers have noticed that roughly every 33 years, the number of meteors observed during the shower shows a marked increase as the Earth passes through the denser parts of the cometary debris trail. Sadly, predictions for this year are somewhat more moderate, with around 10 to 20 meteors expected per hour. Luckily, with a new moon on the evening of the 18th, our chances of seeing some are much better than last year. The radiant of the shower, from which the meteors appear to originate, is located in the constellation of Leo, which rises only a couple of hours before the sun in our morning sky. The best time to observe the Leonids is about two to three hours before sunrise on the mornings around the peak. Look around 20 degrees away from the radiant point for the best chance of meteor spotting. Wishing you clear skies and happy meteor hunting from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory.
1: Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. Please send us feedback. We haven't got any this month. No! we would like to see the outside world. I can't believe it. We're
2: quite lonely here in our little recording bubble. Please talk to us. We don't get out much.
1: (laughs) If you do want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net
2: Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Jodcast
0: Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast
1: YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Jodcast
2: Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast.
0: And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Well, that's all we've got time for for the Jodcast this month. A big thanks to our interviewer, Tom Scrag. Our editors this month were Naomi Asabe-Fringpong, myself, uh, Mark Kennedy and Andrea Doguru. And our producer this month was our very own Jake Morgan. Until next time, Jod Jod on. on!